welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we hope you join us on Sunday mornings at 10.30. We are located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After the message, take a moment and visit our website at vcctulare.com. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, if you're uh, visiting with us, what our philosophy around here is, is, is really centered around two things. And this kind of goes with my personal philosophy. It's uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And uh, heart and mind get split in the New Testament. Back then it meant heart and mind the way they said it. But if we can do those things, then we can become mature believers in, in our Lord and Savior. Uh, so that's kind of how we, we think of ministry around here. You know, our heart is how we treat each other, uh, how we love each other. Our, our soul is, is how we worship the Lord. You know, what, what Pastor Justin does up here and what you guys do is you respond and sing to the Lord and, and many different things like that. Our, our mind, of course, is our teaching and our Bible studies, the women's Bible study and, 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 uh, and the others that, are, that happen. And, and our, our strength is what we do with it. And that's kind of how we, we gear our ministry. So, so as we grow and as we build, we'll start, you know, developing those a little bit more as we go on. But the second thing that, that I really think is, is so important, and I learned this for, way back when I was growing up, is loving, laughing, and playing together. I really truly believe that if we love, laugh, and play together, then we're here around each other to celebrate, and we can be excited with each other. We're here to, to get through difficult times with each other. We're here to support each other. And, and when, you know, when tragedy happens, we're there to comfort each other. So you know, it, it all revolves around loving, laughing, and playing together. And, and that's why, like even today, just hanging out, uh, eating some food together, and, and you know, having the kids play in the water and all that kind of stuff, it's, it's good to love, laugh, and play together. So I, I hope that you uh, plan to stay around with us. And, of course, I make great homemade ice cream, so you might want to you know, partake in some of that. So, Well, anyway, I thought that would be funnier than what it came across. Well, I was up in Canada this past week uh, fishing with, with my father and uncle and my brother and, and a cousin. It was almost a whole family affair. We had one gentleman that wasn't related that went on the trip, but, but they've been going. My, I found out my uncle's been like there 34 times, and my dad's been going about 25 years. And uh, I tell you, it, it, it's one of those places where you can go and you just put a, you know, minnow on the rod and you just stick it out in the water and a fish just like jumps on the hook, you know. I mean, you don't have to have any skill whatsoever. But as I was out there, I mean, we were catching big fish, and um, really, really big fish. And this is, this is uh, one of the pictures of the lake. I mean, it was just beautiful up there. Um, but we were catching really big fish. <laughs> My wife, funny sense of humor. No, no, no. I mean, we were catching big fish. This is my father and I. Um, we could have filled up three or four lures, but, but as we were out there, I had the best day of my life. I mean, even, in fact, afterward, they, they asked me, what were you, well, actually, when we were in the middle of fishing, they go, what did you do this morning? Did you pray? And then that night as we were uh, having dinner, I told them, um, after we kind of discussed the day, I said, well, if you want to catch fish, we're going to have a prayer meeting tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. I expect you out of your bunk. Um, but I caught in one day, by I was in, in, in the boat by myself. Um, I did have witnesses. They were in the boat next to me. But uh, over 50 fish 
And it was just unbelievable. Even, we, even I was laughing going, this is, this is very unusual. The Lord is blessing me that day. And, I mean, fish that we brought home, sized fish. And then I caught a uh, 34 and 3 quarter inch uh, pike that was 12 pounds. And it was nice and big. And I, I was very excited about this. Uh, and the bonus part was that my brother didn't catch anything that day at all. I mean, not one fish. So I was doubly excited. And my uncle, he's been going 34 years, said it was the worst fishing day he'd ever had in his life. I mean, they're like right there. You know the, the story where, where Christ says, just throw your nets out on the other side of the boat? And they're like, oh, come on, we've been fishing all day long. Well, it was one of those things. I had a little GPS marker, and I knew where I caught the fish the day before. So I went back to that place, and they're just right there, and they didn't catch anything. So anyway, I had a really good time, and I appreciate Justin uh, um, you know, uh, preaching last week, and I heard it was a wonderful sermon and stuff. And, and just for everybody that stays around and when we go out of town and, and just all the areas that we have people serve in, I just want to say thank you because it, it is truly appreciated to be able to, to walk away and know that the, the Lord has people in place to take care of things. So, well, let's get into the Word this morning. We're going to be in John 1. We're going to start with verse 14. Not First John, but John. We've been here, uh, I think, about four weeks. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we, we stopped uh, at, uh, at this verse, so we'll pick up there. Uh, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This is He who, who, whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. For he was before me. And his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but the grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, John had great times of interaction with Christ. I mean, just to, I mean, I know that there's times when I feel so close to, to Christ and so close to God throughout my life, you know, certain points, and, and I can remember those exact times I'm just sitting there going, man, I was so close. I couldn't imagine being physically right there with Him. I mean, this is just unbelievable. And to be able to read these words is amazing to me. And, and if John were here, he would have said, man, it changed us. It changed me. It changed who I was. It changed my, my personality. W- w- what I was becoming totally was different different than what I became because of this man, uh, Jesus Christ, who is God. And Jesus is full of grace and truth, he says. And, and the word here is monogenese. And mono, of course, means one. And genese is the one who, who is revealed or the one who came. And so John says, he is the only God who came. Out of all the other Roman gods around that, that the society at the time was worshiping, this was the only God that appeared, the only God that showed up, the only true God, the real true God. And he comes and reveals the, you know, God the Father. And God the Father is full of grace and truth. Now, I don't know if you, you caught that or not. I didn't say Jesus. I said God the Father. And the reason I say that is, is because... He came to reveal the Father. I could have said Jesus is full of grace and truth, which would have been correct. But God the Father is also full of grace and truth, which is, which is correct also. He, you know, he came to reveal the Father. Therefore, the Father is also full of grace and truth. Therefore, the God that many of you grew up with, the, the, the God that many of you were afraid of as, as children... 
the guy who sometimes you feel is mad at you, come to find out he's full of what? Anger and judgment? No. Grace and truth. And we went over that uh, a lot a couple of weeks ago. So he's going to bring grace and truth to you today. How many of you today could use a little bit of grace in your life? Yeah. How many of you could use a little bit of truth in your life? We, lo- we love the grace. Let me run the grace, you know. Truth, uh, okay, go ahead. You know, I don't, oh no, let me close my ears. But it's good. He's full of both. And if we allow, allow it, he fills us with both of that grace and truth. Now, there's, there are those of us that are, that are so full of grace. I mean, of course, me included in that, you know, so full of grace. When it comes to truth, we have a hard time because we don't want to hurt other people's feelings. I would never say that to that person. I would never, no, yeah, let's just be nice. And the truth person could care less about somebody else's feelings. They just go right in and say, look, this is what's going on. And it's so funny because on our trip we had, a, we had a grace person and we had a truth person. And I was sitting back and I was just dying laughing because uh, they were irritating each other and they were in the same boat for about three days. So it was a lot of fun to watch that, you know. But, uh, you know, and last week we talked about, or a couple of weeks ago, we talked about us marrying Jesus in a sense. The, the words to know and to receive. So His grace rubs off on the truth people. And the truth rubs off on the grace people. And all of who He is rubs off on us. And all of who we are rubs off on Him. Now wait a second, what do you mean we rub off on Him? Well, we needed a scapegoat. We needed somebody to take our sins, take our rough edges, and take them off. And do they just disappear? No, they went on Him. And that was part of the grace and the truth exchange that we had with Him. You know, we, we love the fact that, our, the, that the sins of our lives aren't on our shoulders, right? Oh man, it's such a relief when we finally realize that this God that I believe in, this Messiah that I believe in, that He takes all those terrible things I've done in my life, and some not so terrible, they just weren't good things. He takes those. And it's such a relief when I finally start to to grasp that in my life. And that's a struggle because sometimes I grasp that better than other times because, you know, we have the whole guilt thing that comes onto us. Sometimes that's the Holy Spirit saying, Alan, you need to straighten out your life. And sometimes that's our our personality, our mind just weighing us down. And and, and we allow the enemy to use that to weigh us down, to not realize the, the grace that covers us. But to get that, to get that understanding... That someone had to die for those sins, and that somebody was Jesus Christ, is an amazing thing. And he takes what, what is all our junk in our lives, and, and he starts to replace that with the great things that he is. And he starts to balance us. And that's really what the Lord wants to do in our lives. He really just wants to balance us out. He wants to balance our personalities. I don't know, have you ever taken the surveys, the lion, the bear, the whatever, you know, you know the four different personalities. Have you ever done that in your, maybe, maybe not, I see a few heads shaking, you know. What Christ wants to do is bring your extreme personalities and bring it toward the center so you have a little of each. So you have a little bit of grace, you have a little bit of truth, and you center around that. He, he balances us. Because we all have a lot of character traits, and balance is the best of these traits. And that is what Jesus does. See, religion says truth, truth, truth. Let me tell you the truth. But a relationship says grace, grace, grace and truth. You can't leave one out without the other in a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
John comes and says, the truth was the law of Moses. And grace and truth both came through Jesus. Now, for some reason, many people believe that when when Jesus came, He negated the law. He completely just did away with the law. Uh, and and you, you're going to see Jesus walk through the fields as we go through John, and, and they start you know, picking at the wheat and stuff on the Sabbath. And that was considered work, and that was considered breaking the law. You're going to see Him heal the people on the Sabbath. It was a day that the Jews didn't even allow that, and, and that's when Jesus healed the most was on the Sabbath. So we look at that, and we kind of go, man, He was a lawbreaker. Or, you know, or Some people just think, well, Jesus was you know, he's so full of grace. But He was like a radical. He was in your face sometimes. And we're going to see that as we go through John and, and see what happens. And, but the legalists would say, if you break one law, you're throwing all of the law out. You're, you're just getting rid of all of it. And Jesus makes it very clear that he did not come to, to break the law. He did not come to, to negate the law or throw away the law. He came to infuse his nature into the middle of our lives. And there's a difference between calling ourselves a Christian calling ourselves a follower of God, calling ourselves a disciple of Christ, and actually doing it. There's a major difference. You know, as, as you look around, as, and I'm sure you've seen it in many different people, and as you get closer to the Lord and you look back, you don't look at them and go, gosh, I wish they'd get their act together. But what you do is you, your heart is just saddened that somebody who, who calls themselves a Christian doesn't even attempt to follow Christ-like ways. It just it saddens me when I see that. But as we get to know Jesus better and better, we start reading the Old Testament law, and we start to realize that it wasn't all that bad, that the laws were really good to follow. And, and they got taken to the nth degree, and we could even go into you know, kosher and what that means. I mean, we had a fun time. How do you, you know, ask me how do you milk a chicken, and I'll tell you, um, how to, you know, what that means and, and kosher law and where that came from and so forth. It's kind of a funny thing we did as we went through Exodus. But the law can go to the nth degree where it becomes bad. But we realized that as we looked at the Old Testament law, if I don't follow this, man, my relationships get hurt. If I don't follow this, man, I, you know, I may end up with a disease or I may end up with, with something. You know, just even the, 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 the idea of following the pork laws back then because they didn't, you know, they didn't cook pork the way we do today and so forth. It was a good protection of them physically. But there's so many of that. And we began to see the, what the Old Testament law was, a reflection of balance that Jesus brings along with the grace that he presents in the New Testament. So you see Jesus quoting the Old Testament all the time. And you'll see that he's not breaking the law, but he he combines that grace and truth with the law. Verse 15, he says, John bore witness of him and and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. See, John the Apostle, you know, a friend of Jesus, starts talking about John the Baptist. And we have to delineate between the two. Because sometimes if you just start picking it up, you'll get it mixed up. Uh, you know, this is a different type of guy. This is a holiness preacher. And I don't know if you've ever seen a holiness preacher. I mean, they're kind of in your face, beat you over the head with the Bible, you know, standing on the street corner. You're all going to hell type of guy, you know, uh, sometimes. Somebody who, you know, uh, you know will, will look at your life and point out where every sin is. And, uh, you know, every deficiency 
deficiency and every little thing you do wrong, they're like, oh, got you right there, you know, and they'll just point it out. And you're just like, just go away, you know. Um, you know, he would see a sin and say, it's right there. And you would say, uh, just, just stop. And he said, but that's not holy. You know, it's not big on relationship. You know what I'm talking about? Well, John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet type of guy. What do we know about him? Well, he was a PK. Back then, we call it priest's kid. Now we call it pastor's kid. You know, his, his parents, uh, his father was one that did sacrifices. Uh, you know, mom and dad were the priestly line. He was taught the Torah growing up, the Old Testament. And he, he knew all about sacrifice. He knew all about, uh, about what it took to account for sin because he was taught that as a kid. His family would have performed the sacrifices in the temple of Israel. And in fact, his father found out that, that his wife Elizabeth was pregnant with John when he was doing exactly that, sacrificing for Israel. And, uh, you know, he's performing those duties when he found out. And it's a, it's a wonderful story, the, how the Holy Spirit spoke to Zechariah. And, and, you know, you're going to have a son. And, and many of you know the story. If not, you know, go back and, and find it and read it. It's a, it's a very, you know, interesting story about how the, the Holy Spirit said, well, because you didn't believe me, because you, know, you think your wife is too old, that, that God can't perform miracles, I'm just going to make you mute for right now. And it's a great story. But one thing I do want to point out as we have leaders in our church, as we have pastors with kids in our church and so forth, we have to be careful how we handle these particular kids. That we don't hold them to a higher standard than we hold uh, other children to. You know, I can't believe you did that. You're the pastor's kid. Your mom is in charge of the children's ministry. How, do you, how could you ever do that? Instead of just saying, you know, I, t- I can't believe you did that because as Christians we don't do that. We add in that other part because you are whatever. This is like telling the kid, your dad is a truck driver. I can't believe you wrecked your bike. <laughs> your mom's a teacher. How could you fail on that question? Or your dad is a computer tech. I, I, your computer crashed. What are you thinking? Your dad's a fisherman. You can't even get a fish on the line. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. But for some reason, we do that for people of kids that are in charge of ministries. We hold them to a different standard. Well, we don't know if, if John the Baptist grew up like this. You know, we don't know if, uh, well, we do know he ended up out in the wilderness for a long time and not around people. So maybe there was some of that there. I'm not sure. But we do know that he was one of the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he went out there to be alone. And the more we know about him, the more we get the, the idea that he didn't really like people that much. He liked being able to point out that truth, but he didn't like hanging out with people that much. He was an angry, angry preacher. I mean, he was right on. And people were attracted to that truth. This is like, uh, I don't know, um, might point out your age here, but Keith Green in the 70s, wonderful Christian singer. Uh, one of the first guys to really make it big in the, in the, you know, in the Christian music world and so forth. His songs are just so convicting, but people were drawn to it because he was so right. But sometimes you're just like, I, I don't want to hear that music right now. It's just too convicting for me. 
This is how John the Baptist was. And he headed out, you know, to the desert. And the desert's a weird place, and he ate weird, and he, he probably studied with a group of the, called the Essenes. We're not positive on this, but, but many scholars believe that, that he was out there in that area, you know, a large group of, of people that really isolated themselves. And in fact, the, the, um, uh, and my mind just went blank, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found out in the Qumran, which is the Dead Sea area. And this is, this is just a picture of one of the caves. It wasn't the actual cave that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in and so forth. But that area had, you know, a lot of cliffs and caves that they could hide stuff in. And these Essenes basically went out and studied there, studied the Old Testament law. And, uh, uh, you know, the reason they were doing this was because they were wanting to be pure and holy. So they figured, well, I mean, you live in this world. You understand what I'm saying. How can you be pure and holy when you're working in this world? Well, let me just separate myself from the world. And they just didn't take, uh, you know, whereas the Pharisees might wash their hands all the way up to the elbows, you know, certain rules, certain laws. That wasn't good enough for these guys. They took bats and they called mikvahs back then. And, and here's a picture of one. Uh, and they would go down and they would take ritual bats every day, and sometimes multiple times a day, to cleanse themselves. I mean, that, that's how holy these guys wanted to be. But as we come to understand, only Jesus is the one that can purify our insides. We can try to purify our outsides all we want. We can try to get to God by good works. We can try to get to, to God by, by saying, well, well, if I just act this way. And come to find out, that's just the outside. That doesn't cleanse the inside. The inside is where we give over our lives and say, you know what, my life is a wreck. My life is a disaster. Or my life is maybe not a huge disaster, but, but there's something missing. And then we go to Jesus Christ and say, fill that up. You are the one and true, only God. You died for my sins. That's what fills us up. That's what cleanses us on the inside. Not this ritualistic stuff of taking baths. And, and we see this in today's religions, uh, where we take things and we start ritualizing them. And at one time they might have been a very good thing, but we take them to the nth degree. You know, We take them way out there to the extreme. And it becomes tradition. And, and not all tradition is bad. Uh, please don't, don't, don't get me wrong here. Not all tradition is bad. But some traditions are done just for tradition's sake instead of for the Lord. And we see this in today's culture. And that was what was going on with the Essenes at the time. So we don't know for sure if he was one of them or he's out there you know, by himself. But we do know he was on this whole holiness kick. He preached it and he lived it. This is why if you hold somebody else to a standard, if you're one of these holiness guys, that you know, one of the truth guys that loves to point out this stuff, you know, the truth of things, you better live up to it. Because that's what people expect when you start preaching like that. People were drawn to him because his truth was so powerful. They would come from miles around. And in the summer in this area, I mean, just like this area that we live in here, it can reach 110, 115, 120 degrees. And they would be out there all the way from Jerusalem to listen to him. So out from Jerusalem come the religious guys to investigate what was going on. You know, they'd done the math. They calculated everything up. And they knew that they were supposed to be looking for the Messiah around this period. You know, they didn't know if it was going to be their generation or the next generation or the next generation, but they were, they were like, you know, it's going to be sometime soon. They'd done the math. So they knew that the Messiah was coming. And then all of a sudden, you have this guy out in the wilderness. 
And people are flocking to him. And he is baptizing them. Maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe he's the one. Let's go out and look at, you know, look at him. Let's go out and listen to him. So they came out and they had to suffer through his teaching. And when he sees them, he rebukes them. And, and you can go and read the stories about John the Baptist. We're not going to go into every little tidbit on that. But this was unheard of at the time, to rebuke these guys. You know, the Pharisees were the guys who knew the Word. The Pharisees were the guys who who followed the laws as much as they could. You know, they were it. And you couldn't really argue with them. So they were really, really irritated by this man. He was saying, come out here and let me baptize you. And you've got to remember who John is. He's a second cousin to the high priest. I mean, he's got connections. And these guys, you know, the natural reaction would be, why are you talking to me like that? Why? Well, you know, are you talking to me? Well, you, you can't do that. Now, John had such an impact on the Jewish culture, John the Baptist, to the point where a guy named Josephus, uh, who, who was a Jewish historian for the Romans at the time, wrote more about John the Baptist than he did about Jesus Christ. Josephus totally missed the point. But it's very interesting considering the message that John the Baptist had. He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So Josephus totally misses the point. But you can see how how both John and Christ had an effect on the culture at the time. Now John would not even go to Jerusalem. His view that it was corrupt and he wanted to really, he wanted no part of it. And as cities go, I mean, Jerusalem was not that corrupt. I mean, if you start reading about Ephesus and, and Rome and Corinth and, and everything that was going on, I mean, those places were really, really bad. Jerusalem on a scale was not that corrupt. But John was like, no, 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 no. I'm, I don't want any. Jerusalem is evil, you know, as far as John is concerned. So verse 19, they say to him, now this, or, or John writes, now this is a testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now John knew his Bible, and he would know that they would think he was the Christ. Ironically, not all the religious people are looking for Christ to return in the flesh. They, you know, the, there was all sorts of different ideas that were, were going on at the time. And not all of them were thinking about that. Because they did not understand why they needed a Messiah. Other than he will come, throw off the Roman oppressors, restore the throne of David, and go away. Everything will be merry again. That's kind of, you know, a lot of the philosophy of the time. And they ask him. Well, actually, so I got ahead on my notes here, but so when you have the crowds flocking to him, they were saying, maybe this guy can rally the people against Rome. Maybe this guy is the one. I mean, he has guts. Maybe he'll confront Pontius Pilate or, or Herod. And he does this later on. And, and, you know, they were right about the confronting part of John, just not being the Messiah part. So they ask him in, in verse 21, What then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And according to Malachi chapter 4, they were looking for Elijah to come before the Messiah came. And I don't quite actually understand his answer here because I feel that he really was the one that was supposed to come before Christ. I guess I'll have to wait till heaven to, to figure it all out. But I get the feeling that he just didn't want to talk to them. No, 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 that's not me. Just, just leave me alone. Go away. 
Just, I, I don't want to deal with you guys because you're not going to listen anyway. He, you, know, that's, you know, kind of that thought pattern. And he says, so they say, are you the prophet? And this comes from Deuteronomy 18. Now, what they're doing is taking different scriptures and they're trying to figure things out. One, that there would be a prophet. And two, that Elijah would be coming. And, and then three, that there would be a Messiah. And they actually think it's three people. Now, in reality, you know, most scholars think, you know, most evangelical scholars really think it's two, that the prophet and Elijah would be the same, and then the Messiah would come. So that's why they really think it was John. Uh, maybe it wasn't. Maybe we just don't understand all the ins and outs there. But, but you see, Jesus comes and has a ministry of a prophet, a priest, and king. But there was somebody who was supposed to come before him. And we have hindsight about, you know, to see what was happening. And we have Jesus' words later on uh, that really kind of confirm things. But, but he answered them and said, no. Verse 22, it says, Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Basically, they were saying, Stop talking about God. We want to know about who you are. Stop pointing out the truth of, of who God is. What right do you have? They, they focused on the man and not God. So what does John do? He quotes Isaiah 40 word for word. And Isaiah 40, you'll find that that's really John's life mission. If you go read that, the whole chapter, he quotes only a part of it, but really what it, he's referring to the whole chapter there. And Isaiah 52, 53, and 54, you, you'll find that, that, that where John would, found, you know, would find Christ and all the words about Christ and, and so forth. But what's exciting is that we actually have copies of Isaiah found in Qumran, found from this area that John probably would have been out at. So, I mean, it's, you know, this is pure speculation, but wouldn't it be cool that from this time period that John was actually reading these words of Isaiah that we found that we have today? I mean, that's just kind of a cool thought. I mean, it's pure speculation. Don't go off and make a whole theology off of that or anything like that. But it'd be cool to, to think that way. We can't say that it happened, but we knew, do know it was around this time. So John quotes Isaiah and says in Isaiah 40 verse 3, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places made smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken." I wish I really could go on and teach more of Isaiah, but we would be there forever and we'd never get back to John. Um, but when we get to that book, we'll learn that John was actually referring to the whole chapter there and not just this one little passage. He's saying, I am the voice that's crying out in the wilderness. Not the only one, but one of them. And he's saying, I'm preparing a highway for the Lord. Now, what this kind of refers to is, you know, before a king would go out and travel, they would send out the Caltran guys and they would, you know, look at the roads and they would smooth them all out because heaven forbid the, the king's chariot or whatever bounced down the road, you know. They would make it all smooth and prepare the, the way. John is saying, I am the guy going before the king and I'm preparing his way. And the glory of the Lord is about to be revealed. Later on we get to, to Jesus, you know, uh, we'll, we'll come back to my Isaiah, especially... Isaiah 53, when we start talking about that stuff. But you will be amazed at how it describes Jesus. And you will wonder two things. How did Isaiah get all the correct information eight centuries before Christ was born? How did he get it all right? And two, how did the religious establishment 
miss the Messiah. That's just, it's amazing to me how the two correlate together, yet the religious establishment missed it. Verse 24. Now those who were sent from, uh, were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Here's what's going on there. John was baptizing Jews. But not just Jews, but everyone. Everyone who, who responded to John, he baptized. And the Pharisees could, could care less about the Romans and the Greeks that were being baptized. But the Jews were another story. See, John is doing what, you know, what the Holy Spirit does. He's leveling the playing field here. And religion always builds ladders, you know, and John's like knocking all the ladders down. Let's level it out here. John is saying everyone needs God. Everyone is sinful. Everyone needs a, a, you know, a baptism of repentance. See, John didn't care if a Jew got in the water and a, if a Roman was there also. Even though religious practices of the time said this was not acceptable because as soon as a Roman or a Greek gets in the water, you've contaminated the water and therefore you've contaminated the Jew. So, you know, it's just not good. He, he basically said, everybody in. The Jewish officials come out and see this. And they're appalled. He's baptizing Jews with Gentiles? This is not acceptable. Now, what's even weirder is this, is most Jews had never even been baptized. This was reserved for a Gentile who wanted to become a Jew, who wanted to convert to Judaism. So they're saying, what right do you have? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? What right do you have? Where is your seal of approval? Who gave you this authority? I don't remember this coming up in the last committee, uh, you know, committee meetings. Guys, do you have the notes? No, 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 we checked the notes. You didn't get approval for this. Who said that you could baptize Jews? And this is offensive to them. And John doesn't even explain it to them. He says, oh, I'm sorry, guys. I guess, you know, I should have gotten your approval first, Right? No. John answered them saying, If you think I've offended you already, just wait. He says, I baptize with water, but there, one, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. Now, we don't know if Jesus was standing there or not. He could have been, but it doesn't say. He could have been right there among them. Six weeks earlier, approximately six weeks, John had baptized Jesus. John was out baptizing one day, and the Holy Spirit revealed to him about the Messiah. What a cool story that is. And he listened to John preach. And you could imagine Jesus sitting back, just smiling, going, Man, there's a lot of truth there. Not much grace, but a lot of truth right there. And John invites people to be baptized, and Jesus walks out. Imagine the feeling of John. The truth teller, basically saying, the one who is most holy can do the baptizing, and then all of a sudden, the holiest of holies walks out, and the Holy Spirit's revealed to you, this is the Messiah, and you're about to baptize him. What is, he melts. He melts from conviction right there, and refuses to baptize our Lord. Just like Peter would say, no, you, you can't wash my feet. No, I figured out you're the Messiah. No, you can't do that. John has that same reaction. John only baptized people who were less holy than he was. So John looks at Jesus and says, I can't baptize you. 
according to my rules, which is the holiest guy does the baptizing. Jesus tells John to baptize him in order to fulfill the will of the Father. So John, not wanting to go against God, was shaken in his sandals. The water's all rippling from him, shaken. And he baptized Jesus. And then he goes back to what he's comfortable with, yelling at people, telling them the truth. And when Jesus is baptized, a voice is heard, this is my beloved son. And something like a dove, we don't, it wasn't a dove, but something like a dove comes down upon him. And when this happened, we recognize this as a sign of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all at once. God in three forms. But it's also a sign for John. Because in the wilderness, God had told him, the the one that you see my spirit rests upon like a dove, that is Messiah, our anointed one. And John had been living with this for about a month when this encounter happens. So John's response is this. I baptize with water, but there stands one among you uh, you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is prepared before me, preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. I'm not worthy to be the lowest of the lowest of the lowest servant in his house. And that was a menial thing in the first century to be able to wash feet. I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. Yet God made me baptize him. And then the Apostle John throws in this little detail. And he does this a lot, a little time or a little place. In verse 28, he says, These things were done at uh, uh, (laughs) Beth Arbara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Because he wants you to know, this is not a myth. This is not just a little story. This is truth. And if you go to Beth Arbara, you'll be able to see it. Now look at the ministry of John the Baptist. And you will see a guy who is not perfectly balanced. And yet God uses him tremendously. And we start to look at our own lives. And some of us are still doing the whole churchy thing. I'm not ready yet, Lord. I'm not ready yet to serve. It's time for me to set back. And, you know, I'm not really a type of pastor who likes to push people like, oh, we need somebody in this ministry and we got to have, how about you? And, and you know, I, I just, I, I'm a little more relaxed than that. But I do know one thing. There are people out there who should be serving that aren't serving. In whatever way the Lord wants you to serve. And it's not for me to dictate that. I may help direct you. I may help, you know, go, okay, you can serve, but this part right here, okay, allow me with with the Holy Spirit to chop off this part so we can fit you better into the mold, you know, of where the Lord wants you to be. Not where I want you to be, but where the Lord wants you to be. Because not all of you are called to be John the Baptist. There's only one John the Baptist, just like there's only one of you. And God is probably, you know, not going to... To wait until you look and act just like Him, just like Jesus, before you start serving Him. You know, I was reminded this week, um, as I was out there with my dad, 
that him and a group of men, a group of men, for years ran the fifth and sixth grade department at my church. They did wondrous things with these kids. They would take them shopping during Christmas time. They would love these kids. They would take them camping. They would do all these wonderful things. And I tell you, you know, as as I hang out with different people that that my was in part of my dad's ministry and support. I mean, he was just a layperson, but I mean, he was doing ministry. As I hang out with them, they're like, "Oh man, your dad was the best." And I'm like, kind of looking at him, like, "Wow, you know, I got discipline <laughs> from dad, you know." And they're just so they're just so thankful he was there. But I was reminded because he's no longer there serving. Because this group of men were put on a committee to find a youth pastor. And as they looked at the, uh, you know, the, the, all the stuff, the, the things, the resumes that were sent in and so forth, they picked out the ones they liked, and there was one in particular they didn't like. And it, they just had a bad feeling about this person. The pastor goes, well, what about this guy? And they said, no, no, we really, we don't have a good feeling. Well, guess who the pastor hired? <laughs> that guy. And all five of those men stopped serving within a year at that church. Four of them went away to another church. The fifth one, he just kind of went away from ministry completely, stopped really going to church. And it reminded me of this. No matter what, a pastor will eventually hurt you. He will. He's human. I don't know what to say about that. All I can say is we need to serve God, not pastor. We need to serve the Lord, not a church. Because our Lord asks us to serve. Now, I'm not, I'm not, don't believe me, I don't have a whip here going, okay, now, okay, what ministry? Whack! You know, okay, you're in that ministry now. I'm, you know, I'm not saying that at all. Because I need you to figure out where the Lord wants you in ministry. Maybe it's not even in church. Maybe it's ministering at your job. I don't know what that ministry is for you. But you're called to do something. And the Lord wants you to do that. You see, John loved the wilderness. It was his comfort zone, you know? It was his place that he loved to stay. But he didn't stay in his comfort zone. He didn't say, you know, this is what I do and only this. He let God push him into new directions. And because he followed God, great things happened. And he got to baptize Jesus, of all things. See, if you allow yourself to be challenged... If you allow yourself to be pushed, if you don't hide in the desert, you'll be amazed at what God has for you in your life. And He'll give you the strength to do whatever that is. And going through Exodus and Joshua, and if you want, we have those on MP3 in the back if you want to hear any of those. We learned a lot about the wilderness. And we love the wilderness. Why? Because all we have to do is survive. We don't have to worry about anything else. If I'm in the wilderness, as long as I'm surviving, I'm eating, I'm surviving, I'm okay. We love that about the wilderness. That's it, nothing else. And the Lord uses the wilderness to prepare us. Then listen to this, guys. As God prepares you, He wants you to do what He's prepared you for. When is that something going to take place? I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. But he wakes you up and says, with his Holy Spirit, and says, let's start moving. And the Holy Spirit says, you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for all the right pieces to fall in all the right places. Guess what? It's not how it works. When you should be out there actually doing it. 
He's calling you out of the wilderness. He's calling you to, to, you know, talking about Christ in your life and what He's done to change you. Christ said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And I've learned one thing. You can't catch a fish if you don't get out in the boat. Ask my brother about that. You can't catch a fish if you don't put bait on the hook. You can't catch a fish if you don't cast your line out. You can't catch a fish if you never go fishing. You cannot and will not change the world for Christ if you're never willing to, and, and ready to follow Him. So say this, Lord, I want to be used by You in my imperfect state and my sinful you know, person that I am. Lord, I want to be used. Direct me where I should be used at. Lord, if You want to, be, if you want to use me, then I'm willing. Is that You today? Are You willing Only you can answer that. Let me pray a blessing on you. Lord, in this life there are so many hurts. Couldn't imagine all the things that John had to live with growing up, being a truth guy. All the things that must have been said about him. How he ended up in the desert, Lord. But he was willing to be used by you. You had a specific purpose for him. And not everybody's purpose is to go out and just shine the light on sin. We need grace. We need truth. We need that balance of you in our life. And I pray, Lord, that, that there are those out here that are saying, I, I just don't know where I fit in, Lord. That you would reveal where you want them to be. Where you want them to, to serve in life. Where you want them to, maybe it's in church, maybe it's out of church, Lord. I don't know. But Lord, I, I pray to you, allow your Holy Spirit to stir in their life. That they can be comforted knowing that no matter what happens, you're willing to use them when we do just like David does. Lord, I've sinned and I need your forgiveness. Whether our sins are small or whether it's great, we come to you and you're, you're willing and able to forgive us. And then the amazing part, Lord, is you're willing and able to use us. And I thank you for that. That my life has a purpose in your world. Lord, I pray you use your Holy Spirit to reveal that to us. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you and give you great days. Great days of fishing for men. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.